What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode one. This is season three. It's suiting up, and we are presented by the lovely public.com and OutSystems. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Okay, one minute of boring recap, just so those that are new can catch up. And if you've downloaded the show before, let's go down memory lane. We started recording in 2017. Our first guest was Bill Belichick. I remember hopping on a flight to New England with a podcast kit in hand. I was waiting outside of his office. I got invited in. It was the close of the trade window. It had just closed. And Bill looked at me with the podcast mics that were set up. I'm not sure the hardware he was expecting, but he asked me, so this is going to go on the internet? And I was like, yes, coach, and possibly to a lot of people. So uh, let's hold on the swearing. But we did uh, we did drop some F-bombs. So as a forewarning, Mark and I do a bit of the same, but it wasn't too egregious. I was, I was nervous about recording that first episode with Coach Belichick, and I felt the same way with all 77 guests that followed. It's a bit like preparing for a game. You build a scout, you want to do really well, you want the people or the listeners to enjoy it, and it's live. Um, though it's easier when you have good guests because you get into a flow state. And I kind of think about guests in an interview process as teammates, and in this case, season three's guests as such. So today's show, we have Mark Cuban. There's an episode of Shark Tank that I was watching in prep where he immediately withdrew an investment when someone called him the Cubes. And then uh, my producer, Brett, looked at me and said, well, in Entourage, they refer to him as the Cubes, and that was all good. So I was confused, but I did not call him Cubes, okay? <laughs> His entrepreneurial story, though, is crazy. And it's been told everywhere, especially if you're one of the over 1 billion network viewers that have watched the 257 episodes of Shark Tank that have aired on ABC. So... Short of it is that he's grinded from the very beginning, sold trash bags door to door, studied his ass off in school, got in and out of the internet and tech bubble before anyone else is legendary for that. He bought a sports team, which we all know. He's invested in over 100 startups. He's wrestled in the WWE. He's even moved out to LA and acted. You should check out his IMDB link. He dogs me at the end for uh, not spending enough time on it. And why I'm spending a lot of time on that now is we actually don't talk about it on the show. We kind of veer in all different directions about modern media, his business with the Mavericks, and a number of other things. So here we go. Mark Cuban, episode one. Welcome back. This is Suiting Up, season three. Okay, 30-second timeout. Turn on the clock, I promise. This show is presented by sponsors public.com and OutSystems. They've actually made the podcast possible by allocating resources and helping us free up our time to think and invest in our guests. And different than competitors, public.com makes the stock market social. And I know that's trending right now. So you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money, public.com. And then OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps, web, mobile, etc. And when it comes to the PLL, speak firsthand. They helped us design our COVID app last summer in the bubble to keep everyone healthy and safe. Thank you, public and OutSystems. Hopefully under 30 cubes. Okay, let's start here. I've always wanted to ask you this question. We're in this romanticizing era of entrepreneurship, and for this show, we'll call it the Shark Tank Effect. But what's been really valuable about it is you've been able to introduce America to the principles of starting a company. And we learn about idea generation, fundraising, equity, 
and even on the show, you guys will talk about customer acquisition costs, which is pretty elaborate. But the challenge is that with people like yourself, you can be portrayed as this huge overnight success, even though we know you're not. And all this work has gone into it. But the outcome is you have all of these people across the country yearning to be entrepreneurs, but it is so, so hard. So while I believe personally that it's a big net positive to your work in the tank, how do you think about the downside of Shark Tank? I, I don't. <laughs> right? I just deal with what comes along. And, you know, in my mind, I still got a lot more shit to do. I'm just getting started. Yeah. And, and so, but I get your point. You know, people see people coming on Shark Tank and they walk in the door and 10 minutes later, they got all this money piled on top of them if yeah. they get a deal, right? Yeah. And so they don't know that, you know, when someone walks in, and by the way, you can catch Shark Tank Friday nights on ABC. There you go. Um, they don't realize that um, I'm always selling that you know <laughs> that the real deal inside Shark Tank could go an hour and a half, and then we get to do due diligence after the fact, which can take weeks or months depending on the company. Um, and but you're right. I think in terms of romanticization, where the real failure has been, is, and I think this is the Silicon Valley Valley um, fantasy more than anything else, is that you start a company on an idea, you raise a boatload of money and you've got it made. Hmm. And I try to tell people raising money isn't an accomplishment, it's an obligation, yep. right? You know, you should be scared shitless the minute that check clears because if I'm writing you a check, if you're writing a check, you wanna get paid, right? You know, and so it, the work is harder, not easier. And the longer you can go without raising money, the better off you are. Yeah. Yeah. Being a, a steward of your investor's capital is something that you guys talk about a lot on Shark Tank. Uh, how many deals do you think fall through during diligence? For me, about, depending on the season, 30 to 40%. And it's stuff like, you know, do you have any debt on the show? We'll ask them, do you have any debt? Yeah. No. And they have <laughs> $350,000 on a credit card. Well, that's not debt. That's a credit card, right? Yeah. You know, or it cost me a dollar to make my product. And then you do the due diligence and yeah, it costs a dollar if you make 6 million of them in a year and you've sold 17, you know, and just shit like that where, you know, and, and I get it right. We're, we've all been in those circumstances where the pressure's on. Yeah. Right. And there's a make or break scenario there. And if you don't get a deal for us, you know, this is not going to happen or this will happen. And, you know, you just sell, you're just trying to get that deal closed and, and get one of us. And so you exaggerate a little bit, but, that due diligence is usually where it catches up to you. Yeah, and it's all analogous to sport and why uh, sport is is so fun to, to be involved in both of our core businesses is that, you know, you're selling through recruiting the players, whether it's on the free agency market, but then, you know, they get there and, all right, now let's fucking practice and let's get to work and these are the expectations and it's a lot what we see and what we're talking about even on Shark Tank. And then I wanted to kick off with, with Luka Doncic, who, who's, you know, I mean, for all accounts, one of, if not the best players in the league, starting his third season, he's 21 years old and he just leapfrogged MJ for all-time triple doubles. Contextually, um, you know, that's his 29th. Oscar Robinson leads it with 181. Russell Westbrook has 150. I did a little bit, little bit of math in my own like Mark Cuban way, and and uh, he's 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 on a 20% clip of games played. He's 21. He's got uh, he's got 
you know, by the traditional sense of playing in your prime till he's 32, he's going to have 12 seasons under his belt. It's going to be tight, but he will pass Oscar Robinson. <laughs> yeah, if he stays healthy, he's got a hell of a shot, right? Let's talk about like the 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 role you had, kind of the recruiting or, or thought process, similar to how you look at entrepreneurs with Luca, and and how you continue to manicure him and provide well, the know, best environment. Similar, similar, and it's different, right? It's different in that there's an NBA draft. And so we had to make a trade to get him and you get one slot in traditional business. You know, you fuck up with one hire, you're gone. Then we go get another. Yeah. Right. But it's similar in that you don't really know what you've got until he's there or she's there. Right. And so we talked earlier about, you know, you think you're going to hire this VP of marketing who's going to be amazing. And she turns out, you know, not to be good or, or you hire, you know, this dude who is going to be your your best sales rep. And it's the same with players. And I'm sure it's the same in lacrosse, right? Yeah. Because you can see talent. Okay. A lot of guys, you don't get to play uh, to this level without having talent. You can see athleticism. You don't get to this level by have without having, you know, great athleticism. Now, relative to the best in the league, you may not be the fastest or most athletic or the quickest, right? Or the most skilled, but then you get to the real hard part. And that's the mental makeup, you know, and that is the same with an entrepreneur. Hmm. You know, with Luca, when when lots of people say they're going to be the best, everybody who takes a check as an entrepreneur, you know, when they start a company, thinks their company is going to be this or this or that. It's going to be amazing. They're not doing it to lose money. They, they think they can crush it. Right. But it takes the, an entrepreneur with the right mental makeup. Are you do you dream about it? Yep. Do you, you know, when you sleep, are you thinking about it? And that's in your dream and you wake up you know, taking notes and, you know, and when something happens, does it bother you to your core that your product's not right or your service didn't get delivered right or a customer's upset? You know, when something's changing in the industry, are you delegating it to somebody or are you making sure you know it so that you can explain it to them and know that and show them how to get it right? You know, are you building a team and do you have that ability to keep all these things? Then are you working to get better? Because you talk about sport, the ultimate business is the ultimate sport, right? You know, people are always out there trying to kick your ass with another widget. And you could be some 12 year old girl that that is just going to blow you away. You just don't know what's going to come from. Yeah. As it relates to athletes, what's their mental makeup? You know, Luca obviously was skilled. Luca obviously had that killer instinct. You know, he was 17, 18 years old winning MVP awards, you know, so you knew he had an amazing mental makeup. But when you get to the NBA, no one's ever drafted somebody first, second, third, fourth, whatever thinking they were going to suck. Right. Yeah. You know, always think <laughs> that, you know, this, this, this player has got it. But what I've learned, you know, over the years, you know, like when I would talk to Dirk, play 21 years with us and I would say, Dirk, what do you, even 18th, 19th year, what are you going to add this summer? Now, by the time he got to the end, he would say, I'm going to add the ability to be able to walk. <laughs> but, you know, early on it'd be like, I'm going to add this to my game. I'm going to add this to my game. And then over the off season, they would do it. Yeah. They would just do whatever it took, however many hours, whatever it took. Right. Luca's the same way. After his first season, I said, Luca, what are you adding? He goes, My left hand wasn't very good. I didn't do a good job finishing with my left around the basket. And he did. Next season, last season, top five in finishing around the rim. This year he comes back he, after last year. And I said, What are you going to add? He goes, My mid range. Now I'm not talking, you know, dribble, pull up, you know, that's the bad mid range. You know, the good mid range is you drive to the basket 
and you know they all collapse on you and you have a counter so that you can step out you know two three four feet outside the paint and make a shot yep the shooting percentage i don't know the exact number but it's up like 20 percent over the same thing last year when he sets his mind to get better he does it and the hard part in investing in entrepreneurs is finding that type of business athlete somebody who's willing to work to do it you know with what what it takes for you know just what you've got to do yeah you know it all falls back on you and you you know you can think you know the right things you have you have to do you can hope you know the right things you have to do but the minute that thing starts and you you know put this new franchise in this new city and you start doing the marketing or you're working on this program or that program you know there's a scorecard no doubt and the real entrepreneurs feel that scorecard every minute of every day the fake entrepreneurs don't really keep score. They just want to know if they if they look good doing it. This is where volume and experience comes in. Is is you have experience with your own team, with yourself as a born and bred entrepreneur, and with athletes. Where I feel like workplace candidates, athletes, will all say, "Hey, you know, I have Mark Cuban ask me what I need to work on. I need to work on my mid range. I need to work on my 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 left hand finish around the rim." And and sometimes they're full of shit. Right. And you, or you get most it the most of the time. One of the things that, that I picked up from Lucas post game interview when he, when he passed MJ was that his response was the second half I played terrible. And, and to me, it's like, damn, this guy's got radical humility. And, and that yeah. is like a big tell for someone who is as talented as he is. Now, a lot of guys will have fake humility with Luca. It's real. It's real. You know, he gets pissed. How do you stress test the difference? You don't know until you know, hmm. you know, and, and um, that's the challenge, particularly in business. In basketball, like in lacrosse, you'll find out real soon. Yeah. Right. Because anybody who gets to your level, they were the best in high school. They were really good or the best in college. Right. They, they were one of just a few that made it to your level and they're good, but there's a difference between being a professional and playing at a professional level and being the best. Yep. And not everybody's got the tool set to do it, but when you've got that chance, you see it very quickly. Now, you know, in basketball, and I don't know lacrosse, but like in basketball, there's some guys that just mature later and they have to, they have to fail a couple of times in order to realize that they screwed up. Because, you know, maybe they didn't have the maturity. Maybe they had people in their ear that were wrong. Like, I'm sure you get that all the time because yeah. it's such a parents-driven um, sport, right? Because it's expensive and you got to take the club stuff and your parents are right there all the time and the kids are young, you know, and, and basketball is the same way with AAU. And so you never know who's going to be in a kid's ear giving them bad information. But sometimes when they fall down, Maybe not even the first time, it might be the second or third time they get cut from an NBA team or you go from a big contract to a non-guaranteed contract. That That's when they recognize that they've got to get their shit together and they turn it around. But that's rare. Yeah, the family lineage is a, such a big part of the way that we're going to you know evolve or, or adapt and react in our professional careers. And then you inject therapy and business coaches and, and, and you can add some acceleration. But I'd imagine if you have a first round pick in the NBA, there's there's tens of if not hundreds of millions of dollars if you get it right on the line. How deep do you go into understanding family patterns and family history for some of these guys? A lot. Yeah. You no, know, you, you dig up everything you can. But but you know how it is, though, particularly now with social media, guys are used to putting on that first date face. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. where you say all the right things the first date and you don't let your guard down Gosh. and you dress, you know, you know, this is who you are or who you want to portray. 
And they're so used to answering those questions or presenting themselves on social in a certain way to set to define their brand. Every kid who comes into the NBA at some level has a brand already. Yep. You know, that's just the way it works now. And so they're used to, to presenting that brand and it's hard to dig through there and we're right sometimes and wrong sometimes. But the reality is it's more luck than anything else, you know? Yeah, you cut through it a lot. And there are two things you're looking at is is the brand and then, you know, their their performance on court. One thing you mentioned, Dirk, so 21 seasons, that's the most ever of an NBA player with a franchise. Kobe was at 20. Um, that type of legacy, MJ Bird, Kobe, Magic, you know, we're in a, a free agency era of the NBA. It's it's uh, It makes it exciting for the fan, but I got to imagine, even though NBA team valuations are skyrocketing, the investment in long-term hard assets uh, for those players, if they're signing a one-year, two-year deal, becomes a little bit more tricky. And I think the sophisticated ownership groups can figure out how to you know, be agile around it. And I'll just use Joe Tai as an example, who's our lead investor of the PLL. Um, you know, some of the conversation now that James Harden's over at the Nets, who is the team he owns, um, you know, there's some conversation like, well, they're, they're trying to keep Kevin Durant, right? And, and, and like future deals. So it, it, that's a that's something that's different in the NBA. Maybe exciting for the fans, but how do you think about the business impact of of guys looking to sign one year deals? There's a couple of pieces there. One is the culture of the team. Hmm. What is the impact of any given player on the culture on the team? You know, my rule is rule is you can have one knucklehead, you can't have two because hmm. then they hang out together and start dragging people down. Um, so culture is critically important. If you don't have chemistry, whether it's the NBA or PLL. It ain't going to work, mm-hmm. right? And that's always a challenge. We've seen super teams fail miserably. Two, there's the business side. I'm blessed financially, so I'm not worried so much about the business side. I'm worried about getting more of those those Larry O'Brien buddies back there. <laughs> and um, But the, in terms of investing, it means always looking for an edge. You know, for a while, you know, we were the first team to have a full-time analytics guy, first team to have a full-time um performance coach, I mean, um, team psychologist. Yep. And that really paid us dividends, both did, but it starts becoming a very efficient league over time. So now getting more advantages in terms of analytics isn't about just using box score data. It's, you know, artificial intelligence. It's, you know, pose estimation. It's all these different things that, you know, uh, computer vision that you're trying to talk to the smartest people you can find and say, okay, what edge can you give me? Just give me one more win, right? Or give me, you know, a way to determine, you know, that this is better, this or that's better. And it's not just about, you know, threes versus twos or mid-range versus, it's okay, what, it could be anything, right? Yeah. Just give me an edge. Yeah. Um, and that's where we spend a lot of time and investment. It doesn't really matter who my players are, right? I'm doing this to get an edge. And it's the same thing with performance technology and people's health mentally and physically. You know, how do you keep guys healthy? Um, I funded a study on HGH where, um, you know, there's never really been a study to determine of, of HGH really was performance enhancing. Mm-hmm. Lacrosse is an Olympic sport, right? It's it, not. It, well, we have provisional recognition now starting in 2018. So we're on the path to, to LA 2028 gold medal participation. It used to be. But in advance of that, we follow uh, world doping rules. Okay. So I was going to say, if, if you did have that, you guys could be way ahead of the curve because <laughs> there's seriously, 
you know, there's never been any research that says that HGH is detrimental to any human being. You know, there's there's suggestive things, you know, where people doctors suggest, well, it increases, you know, cell growth. So that can lead to more cancer. Right. But there's, there's no research whatsoever saying that there's not even really research other than, you know, one study talking about performance enhancement. Yep. There's nothing out there. And just like Iwata used to to ban caffeine during the Olympics. Right. There's just they just did it because they thought they were supposed to do it. Um, and so I went to the University of Michigan and I said, look, I'll pay for a study. I want to know, can we use HGH to help guys recover from ACL surgery faster? And the answer was yes. Hmm. You know, and so the league, you know, given all the circumstances this year, I'm not going to push it on the NBA or anybody, but we're looking at future alternative studies to confirm it. Because if you can, if I can, or the NBA can, you know, make it easier to recover from inevitable injuries, make it easier to preempt what would have been inevitable injuries. That's better for the players. That's better for the league. That's better for all sports, right? Better for kids. Cause you see it kids growing up playing lacrosse all day, every day, or just like kids growing up playing, you know, basketball all day, every day, they get repetitive stress injuries. They get the same injuries over and over. And for girls, it's even worse. Yeah. They're blowing out their knees, you know, more often than not. Yep. And so, I'm always looking for a way to to make it better for our players wherever personalized medicines involved wherever you know technology is involved wherever nanotechnology is involved whatever it is yeah you know I'm going to be there trying to get that edge so you have the 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 psychology of traditional um steroids which which um you know were um the, these chemicals uh, outside of the the body's natural development, which you mentioned, HGH and testosterone, are both uh, natural uh, uh, genes that our our body is creating. So the traditional uh, thought around steroids, isolated. If you think about performance enhancement, I mean, tennis players, golf players, they get LASIK eye surgery. Uh, players recovering from surgery, they get stem cell. Yeah, baseball players get Tommy John surgery. Surgery is a performance enhancer. No question. So two parts there, right? I still firmly believe that WADA is the biggest root of the problem because that's what makes fans think that they're cheating, right? Because yep. they did this, particularly how baseball handled it in the late 90s, right? Yep. But just like caffeine, right? Oh, you, you drank coffee before the game? You know, it becomes common, yeah. you know, once you um, decriminalize it, right? Once you destigmatize it. And so, you know, I'm trying to get the NBA to extract itself from the Olympics and do just like soccer does. Soccer sends, I think it's 21 and under, right? And anybody over, because the NBA, we need more business. We need more global business. We should be creating our own World Cup, period, end of story. Yeah. We don't need the Olympics. It's To me, it's the dumbest thing that the NBA does hmm. because we take our best players and they play for an organization, effectively, the USA Basketball, which is part of FIBA, which then feeds into Olymp the Olympics, right? The Olympics is for profit, even though it's nonprofit. Yeah. There's so much grift, graft, and greed there. And so we're making billions of, not the NBA only, but contributing to the making of billions of dollars over every four years. And what do we get in return? A little bit of branding, a little bit of visibility that we could recreate by doing our own World Cup and owning the whole thing, just like soccer does. Yeah. I mean, just beyond ridiculous. Yeah. And so you know, those are the types of battles, but, and it starts, this conversation starts with WADA, yeah. right? As 
long as they do dumb shit and don't care and just are on a power trip, it's not like people are like, wow, water really protected me. You know, yeah. when they kicked out the Russians, you know, after they had been doing yeah, this yeah. shit forever, right? Nobody felt like water was protecting anybody. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just there. And it shouldn't be. Not not that we don't need standards, we do. Yeah. But there at least should be some common sense and a, a reduced amount of hypocrisy. Okay, we're going to take a halftime break for two of our presented by sponsors. The first is public.com. And are you ready for this? Do you remember your first time? No, not that first time, Brett. It's tempting not to go there. Your first time investing. It's exciting, but also a little scary. Still feeling tempted. I'm still feeling tempted. And I'm going off script. But my first investment was in Chipotle. I knew I believed in the company mainly because of its product. The burrito was bigger than my hamstring and was only five bucks and some change. But it would have been nice to have had some support financially along the way. And things are different now. Okay, You don't have to be alone with your charts and numbers because of an app called public.com. Public makes the stock market social, and the stock market is very, very social and hot right now. The free app allows you to buy slices of stock for any amount of money and then collaborate with other investors to get smarter together. Now, I've been on the app for months, and I'm loving it so far. I post weekly. You can follow me at Paul Rabel. And you can join me if you're not on the app now today and I'll gift you $10 in free stock on me. So join the community at public.com forward slash suiting up. That's public.com forward slash suiting up, and let's invest together. Note this offer is valid for U.S. residents 18 and up and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures. And more important disclosure, I'm not a financial advisor recommending you buy Chipotle stock. They were just my first. Now we're approaching the end of halftime. Everyone's out of their lockers, getting ready to get back on the field. And our second presented by sponsor is OutSystems. They are a business that makes applications that make the difference. Allow me to explain. They're a modern app platform for building the software that help your company move faster and into the future. OutSystems empowers teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers. We worked with them on that bespoke COVID app during the bubble. Every player, staffer, referee, coach was on it, checking in daily. It worked seamlessly, and we got out of there with zero positive COVID tests thanks to OutSystem, and you can build the difference with OutSystems and your company. Learn more at OutSystems.com. That is OutSystems.com. Let's get back to the show. I heard uh, Michelle Roberts talk about the the upcoming CBA, and one of the things she said is that athletes are going to want to look at positioning for potentially stock options in a team, or maybe they take a pool of options and distributed equally amongst the players. It's a lot more complicated than just you know players having a wish list, and and I get to kind of understand both sides as as a player and owner and the NBA's trade association model versus true single entity and all the nuance there, yep. uh, not to mention the, the the continued salary cap increase. And these guys are getting paid, you know, upwards of $40 million over the next few years, a year. Um, but the tie that she made that's kind of relative to the, related to this point is, is she's really looking at team valuations versus current team economics. And on the CBA, team economics year to year, players are getting close to 50% of that share. 
51. So it's like, how do you have a conversation as an owner with the PA around just the sheer difference of being a stock option holder in a business and that potentially never paying out? Look, if the owner doesn't want to sell. Let's not talk about the ABA, CBA per se. Let's talk about, you know, rugby or or soccer, because I can't talk about the NBA collective bargaining. Got it. That'll cost a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, talking about other leagues, you know, whether a single entity model that works, I mean, you know, what MLS is doing, but like for MLS, as an example, options only matter if there's liquidity. That's right. The one thing you don't want to be is um, a minority owner in a team that's not paying dividends, right? It's not paying out money um, and that has no interest in selling. And so, you know, it's, it's really hard to quantify any of that, you know, anywhere with the MLS or anywhere for that matter. And so, you know, now maybe all that changes with facts and everything coming out, um, these special entities, maybe you'll see some professional teams. Um, you know, wouldn't shock me if, um, you know, MLS or PLL, right. For that matter, I'm sure you guys have had conversations. It's actually part of our, our first comp package that we discussed in, in getting, uh, the players over from Jake Steinfeld's league, which we have since uh, announced a merger with in December. So, so now Major League Lacrosse is tucked under PLL. When I was looking at competing with UFC 15 years ago, um, you know, the fighters at the time didn't get benefits. You know, they weren't necessarily part time, but they weren't earning a full time living, right? And they didn't have health care. And health care obviously is a big issue for any professional athlete. And if you create a company and we wanted to provide options, well, there's going to be, you know, you want to be in business for, you know, generations. And, you know, if you're, you're going to have to issue stock in order to meet the needs of new athletes, you know, in order to get them the same deal. So that creates its own set of challenges, you know, and how do you create liquidity? It's like kind of, you know, um, switching gears a little bit, like, from a Shark Tank perspective, you see all people come and pitch us all the time about crowdfunding. Crowdfunding always sounds really interesting, yeah. right? You just get, get people to give you money, but I, I'd never do a crowdfunding deal and never invest in a crowdfunding company because there's no liquidity for the people who are giving you money, hmm. right? So you could put up, you know, I'm selling dollar bills for 50 cents in this crowdfunding deal and somebody puts up their life savings. What a great deal. I'm giving you, you know, $250. Um, and you can tell them now your company's worth 10 times what it was, but if there's no liquidity, right, it's useless to them, right? When they got to pay the repair bill for their car that broke, you know, and, and they need that money, they're shit out of luck. And so you've got to look at all the downstream consequences. Um, and, you know, that's one of the problems we ran into doing the whole um, HGNet fights thing is how do you keep on issuing equity. That's right. In a normal company, it's not a big deal, right? So when you when I start a company now, I have no problem giving equity to employees. You create an option pool, right? And if you have to issue new shares, that's great, but you don't have like you know, you don't have teams per se or licensees, right? Yep. There's just a completely different dynamic and the turnover in players, because father time's undefeated, right? Right. They're only gonna, yeah, they're only gonna last so long. Um, and so that creates its own set of challenges. Yeah. And with a company like, like one of your you know, hundreds at, at Mark Cuban companies, and, and I've read that, that you, uh, that that is something that you believe in, especially in the early stages is that as your companies mature, there's not an expectation that later stage employees are going to get options. And, uh, you, you know, you, you read about it even, you know, in, in the founding days of ESPN, 
um, and and that you know they brought over some of their their top tier executives from other networks, having just poached them, and uh, they paid them healthy cash compensation, and those employees wanted equity. If you come work for me, and it's a, a startup company, not, not one I've invested in because I don't have control of that, right? right? One that I've started down to the last day until we sell it. You know, and typically what I do is I create a formula and I've used the same formula over and over. I take your salary times the number of months that you work and I do that for everybody and add it all up. So if you make 25K a year and you work for me for 100 months, right, I take that total, add it to all the totals. And then whatever the payout is from me selling the company that's attributable to employees, you get your percentage. Yep. So the guy, the people who were, you know, the most highest paid, well, you get a little bit more of, a, of an angle. But if you only work there a year, you're not going to get more of the, the pool than somebody who makes $30,000 a year, but has worked there for 15 years. They're going to make a lot more. What are the biggest differences between executive or senior position hires that you make at, at one of your companies versus kind of entry level related to the questions tied to that option pool that they get access to, um, you know, and how, how important is it to them? Yeah, it's pretty standardized. Like we don't, whatever we're doing before you got there, we're going to continue doing that. And if I have to hire somebody that I think is an executive level, then it's almost always an individual negotiation. Yeah. You know, how bad do I need them? Yeah. Now, the challenge for most companies and particularly smaller companies, they look to some executive. I'm sure you see this all the time, too, for the teams, right? Yep. I just hired the best revenue person ever. I just hired the best salesperson ever. I just hired the best you know, marketing person ever, right? This person worked at ESPN or Disney, right? Yeah. And then they come in and shit the bed, right? right? And so the challenges for entrepreneurs is you can't sell yourself too much on this person that you're hiring. Yeah. That's the hard part, right? Because then, you know, and that typically is the result of some level of desperation. You know, it's like, you know, sales aren't where I want them to be. I'm not hitting my numbers or, you know, in order to raise my next round, I got to get to this number of sales. And so I, I'm, I can't do it. I don't know how to get there. So you start throwing these Hail Mary hires yep. and that's the challenge. And, you know, I try to tell people don't hire out of fear that you're not going to do something. And if you do hire, you know, hire slow and fire fast, take your time to get it right. And if you screwed up, kick them to the curb. So it's, it's clear you think about all this stuff um, at, at a really immersive level. Um, and I, I think, you know, your entrance in the NBA, a lot of your, your colleagues um, and you got in in 2000 for a, a whopping 285 million. And now the franchise is worth 2.4 B's. Uh, but, but a lot of your colleagues are considered like the most sophisticated owners in sports. And then we've seen a, a larger wave of that given enterprise value in sports that are continuing to, to, to grow because of modern media and tech and owning the real estate and so on. Um, you're seeing, you know, private equity, SPACs, like quote unquote, more sophisticated folks looking at sports. But what's interesting as I think about you is you got into win and still talk about winning and pointing the trophy back. I want more of those. And you have to balance your uh, intellect around growing the numbers and and like you know being more innovative and lobbying across a board of governors. How do you find that difficult, or do you still prioritize every day? Get up in the morning, like we got to win tonight. Win tonight. Fuck everything else. Yeah. If you told me I can win a championship with nobody coming in the door and no revenue, okay, 
Yeah. You know, let's go. That's what I care about. Would you have looked at the opportunity differently, you know, 20 years later, same Mark Cuban, you know, pro rata your, your, you know, your, your business success in sales and getting into the NBA at the current valuations? Yeah, I do it the exact same way because I love basketball, just like you love lacrosse. Yeah, I've, I've been a basketball junkie my entire life, and to me, half the fun is being able to go out, in the, you know, on the NBA court at the American Airlines Center and just get up shots, you know, before every home game, or yeah. you know, if the court's set up, just going down there and shooting all I want, or going to the practice facility and shooting with the guys. I mean, <laughs> that's like being a big kid, and you know, the value there is is you know, you can't put an amount on that. Yeah. You know, the business part, that's, I know that, right. I'm not perfect at it. I, you know, I'm still learning, but I'm decent at it. And so I know what to do there. Um, and I'll, I'll, we'll do what we can, but like, we don't maximize the ticket prices. You know, that's not our goal. I, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to, to optimize my revenue, um, yield per ticket. I don't care. Right. I'd rather have a full house. And prior to all this, we had a sellout streak that was like 800 some games long. Because, you know, I want to have people in the seats. That helps me win. Yeah. When you have fans going nuts in a full house, the players feel it. And, um, you know, I feel it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's just nothing better. I think about your fan experience push early on. And you wanted, I remember hearing it somewhere, and we talk about it with our team. It was like, this has got to be a kick-ass experience. You're in arena sport which is always going to be better because it's a better controlled environment than an outdoor sport. So how are we going to get the family to come? And and you were early on to pushing, you know, a younger youthful experience, which interesting about us is when I used to play an MLL, we'd show up and it felt like our audience was, you know, the same as an amusement park. And there were a lot of kids and we need beer drinkers. Right. So like we're actually trying to get more millennials to our games. And then when I read you, you're trying to get more families. And I know we're, we're operating from different starting blocks, but the first thing we had to figure out that I had to figure out when I bought the team is what business are we in? And the NBA thought we were in the business of basketball. And when it came to in arenas, we weren't. We were in the business of experiences. You know, you remember the first time you went to a game. You know, a young lacrosse player who's really into lacrosse, they'll remember the first time they went to a PLL yep. game or MLL game, right? Yep. They'll remember whether it was their mom, their dad, their aunt, their uncle, if they went with their team. You know, I remember the first time I went to a college basketball game with my sixth grade teammates that my coach took me to, right? Yep. And it was in you remember the experience. You don't remember the score. You don't remember who scored. You don't remember the dunks, you know, and unless it was a, you know, winning, it's the only place when that ball is in the air for either sport, right? And it's heading towards the net and every collectively is holding their breath and you're either screaming or yelling or, you know, or, or commiserating. Where else do you get to do that? And what other, you know, what other industry, when you win a championship, the whole city's on fire. Yep. You know, and everybody's going nuts and they throw a parade. They don't throw parades for Apple, Netflix, IBM, whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> they throw parades when the team wins a championship. And that's what makes it so different. And you have to realize that that experience, that emotional connection is really what you sell. And you start to see it now with the MLS and with you guys, with some of your games you've seen as well. When you've got a, a fan base that's really into it and, you know, you talk about beer drinkers. You know, I played rugby forever and we never really had many fans, but they were all drinking beer. That's right. And when they're drinking beer and they're loud, you know, and when you see the MLS fans going nuts and your fans going nuts, right, 
Now, when they're young, you hear the young kids screaming, and that's one type of fan. Yeah. But when everybody's singing songs and you know waving the colors and all that, that's the experience. Most of those guys don't even go for, or people don't even go for lacrosse or for soccer. They go for the beer drinking and the hanging out. The and, tribalism. Yeah, just being part of the experience. Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually that's absolutely right. And then the 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 multiplier layer is distribution. So wanted to hit on your thoughts, um, and I'm not going to talk about ratings. Um, everyone talks to you about ratings. I want to talk about more macro theory. Sure. So the, the the future of of media, and if the holy grail is still television, we're seeing cord cutting. I started doing some reading around you know the 80s and the television era and the HBO and ESPN era, and when they had 14 million households that had cable, it was booming then. I wonder where you think we're going to net out with owned and operated. I believe a future is going to be broadcast. So you own and operated cable is going to go to streaming. We're already seeing an uptick in streaming wars. COVID's an accelerator, perhaps. Um, you're seeing live sports as now the largest customer acquisition tool to a lot of the entertainment execs that didn't think that would be the case for the streamers, which bodes really well for us in our business. So yep. if if the future is is broadcast owned and operated, so you'll see a trimming of television, and then you have streaming for the distribution of the games, what's going to happen with RSNs? And do you think that the owned and operated cord cutting will level out at 50 million? What's your guess there? Okay, so last one first. I have no idea where, okay. right? but what I do know <laughs> so is, <Benny> would. <laughs> yeah, what I do know is bits are bits. Yeah, right. I started a company, HDNet, which was the first all high def television network when people thought high definition wasn't ever going to be a thing. Right? The TVs cost twenty five thousand yeah. dollars. No one's going to pay twenty five thousand dollars. I'm like, no, you don't understand. The price point is going to go down. Now, as time went on and streaming became more. Profitable. Even when we started the streaming industry, when we started AudioNet, you know, back in 95, late 94, 95, the biggest limitation we had, limitations we had were processing power and bandwidth, right? And those, the processing power went away, but bandwidth was still an issue up until five years ago, maybe, yep. you know, then you started seeing, you know, 200, 300, or at least a hundred megabits to a home, not being a big deal. Once that happened, that's when cord cutting really came into play mm. because people could easily make the switch. It wasn't only price. It was the fact that it would work hmm. because early on when you would stream your, your Netflix, remember Netflix was the original DVD. That's right. It would buffer and this and that. And when you tried to watch something, it would buffer and you're trying to watch this. And it's just annoying when you could go right to your cable. But then as the Internet, you know, became bandwidth, became more plentiful, then cord cutting became a lot easier and it was cheaper as an alternative as well for any one feed. Now, when you try to get out all the things you want, it adds up almost as much anyways. But so here we are. So the thing that's really changed what's going to happen going forward are, are those two things. One, the processing capability of the devices that are presenting the video and two, the bandwidth available, because those two things together allow you to one, show as many feeds as you need to, you mm -hmm. know, and so you know, even on traditional television, whether it's satellite or cable, um, you saw with the NFL doing um, Nickelodeon yep. and you saw them with the ability to to um, do the slime and all that using augmented reality. Well, that was because the bandwidth is available to them. Hmm. Now, imagine now as we go more towards streaming, if the PLL or the Mavericks or the NBA could do 
10 different streams. Yeah. Hmm. You've got the traditional Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson stream. You've got the Twitch guy, you know, doing their stream. You've got the YouTube streamer doing it their way. You've got the gambler getting overlays with augmented reality of stats. You've got um, no broadcasting voice whatsoever. And you just have all these different augmented realities overlays that may not even be stats. They may be, you know, who knows what, right? Yeah. Um, you've got um, just chat, nobody talking and people just chatting, you know, or everybody talking a la discord, you know, who knows where it's going to go, but you're going to, we're going to be able to deliver what people want, how they want it, where they want it, when they want it. Right. That'll be the big change we've got, you know, but the hardest part of all of it for the, the TV revenue driven sports, which really is baseball, basketball, and the NFL mm -hmm. is what's the cutoff point. It's the innovators dilemma. When do you hurt yourself? Hmm. Right. When do you take less to prepare for the future? And that's the hard part for us right now because our TV revenues are so high yeah. that we know that we're going to have to give up revenue, but we also know that our customers want this now. Yeah. And so trying to create that balance because you talk about, is it 50 million? Is it 60 million? Is it, I think we're at 80 million now between 70 and 80 million now. Yep. Well, those, those cable companies and satellite companies, they need us. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. And so they're willing to pay even more of a premium because what used to be like Shark Tank six years ago used to pull a 2.0 was a good number in the 18 to 49 demo, which is the and best demo. Nine million viewers. Right. Yep. Now, if we get a 0.8 and 4.5 million viewers, that's great. But the interesting thing is five that five years ago when a 2.0 on broadcast television was, was good. Cable, ESPN, and TNT would get a 1.4 or 1.5. We were always at least 25% under broadcast television, if not 75% or 50% for versus most broadcast shows. Yep. That's not the case anymore. Now on broadcast television, the NBA pulls a 0 0.8, a 1.0, a 1.1, which is better than broadcast television is doing. So the point is our value to those traditional broadcasters the non-streamers is going up significantly. Yeah, and, and yeah, but the, the, does the media rights value, here's another question, you have to go down, or is this a similar conversation as WADA is to Nielsen and like the arbitrary antiquator of, uh, of, of advertising dollars, which at, at cable's peak, cable and broadcast peak, $100 billion in advertising was going into television, now it's down to 70 billion. Um, should we just be valuing our CPMs differently? Like, so to your point, the Super Bowl effect, right? And yeah. so it's not necessarily meaning the Super Bowl itself. It's where can you get the biggest audience? You can't just go to streaming and say, I want 4 million people, right? Or yeah. you can't just go to streaming and say, I want a one, you know, 1.2 million or, or it won't be 1.2 million. Let's just say 800,000 um, men, 18 to 49 or right. women, you know, so where am I going to find that all at once? That's the challenge because even an advertising driven streaming, because the biggest streamers, you know, Netflix, et cetera, um, even Amazon to a certain extent aren't taking advertising at all. Right. So where advertisers go to get an audience, we're still the biggest audience you can get at one pop. Yeah. And so the rates keep on going up like a Super Bowl is 5.5 million yep. and other rates are, are stagnant. The, the real issue here is, okay, do we do, direct to consumer 
and try to own the whole thing and what can our revenue be there um and when do we do it or like we're still early in the streaming wars and they're not really wars because people have three five six packages yeah they'll have amazon prime because they have amazon anyway they'll yeah. pay their 15 bucks a month for netflix they'll pay their whatever for espn and disney plus you know they'll get you name it time warner hbo max yeah so they're they're doing all those but we haven't seen any of them really start to decline yet yeah. we haven't seen any of them really face churning issues the one thing about um sports particularly you know the nba or even more so baseball is the volume and the cost per hour yep right? So even though, um, and the churn, right? So the if you're trying to reduce your churn, like I, you know, now you can cancel a streaming um, product, you know, a streaming package in a minute, yep. just like that, right? And then turn it on a week later, right? And get your seven free days, or yeah. maybe you know, your seven watch free billions days on Showtime and get out of there. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, right? <laughs> I've done that before, and then you're done, <laughs> yeah. right? Or, or, you know, or get on your Sling TV or whatever, or do your AT&T TV um, to get the Mavs at 80 bucks a month, monthly until the season's over, right? But that season goes nine months. And so we're a great retention tool. So as the need for reducing churn and adding customer retention goes up, the, the demand for sports streaming rights are going to go up. Yep. And so that is the balance versus us doing our own direct to consumer or taking less money and being able to do side by side direct to consumer. Yeah. The thing that I love about sports more than live news and news gets, you know, it's had a huge bump during the the, the Trump regime specifically, but, but like cable news has found a, a nice niche for uh, de delivering a consistent and, and sizable audience is that news can still go behind a paywall and already is in a certain extent because you don't need advertising to consume what we want immediately. Take Twitter. Right. And even if Twitter flips to a paywall. In sports, it's built-in advertising because of timeouts, because of quarter breaks, because of challenges. Right. And that is what differentiates sports from any other form of live programming and why it's even more valuable. The 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 other piece, though, related to the streaming wars, as you had mentioned, and listen to Tom Rogers talk about this, is we're all focused on uh, total subscribers. Netflix just passed 200 million. Disney's at 87 million, you know, HBO Max 57. It just kind of, they're, they're all growing. But what he cares about and why he always bet on Netflix over Disney is, is total engagements. And this shifts us over to social too. And he goes, Netflix and YouTube account for over 50% of engagements. That means people are actually watching and Disney's at 5%. And he was like, that worries me about Disney because what it comes down to is purchasing power or your pricing power. And, and Netflix could probably turn from 15 to 25 a month and still maintain a lot of their subscribers because people are actually watching. Right, and, and they have raised their prices, right? They have, yeah. And that's what we get with sports is people, and that's a good thing. You, you mentioned the NFL is 12 minutes, so people ambient watch. Your game's 48, so you get a longer you get a longer viewer, and that's well, what that's bad, right? Because there's an inverse relationship between the amount of actual action versus the ratings. Yeah. Right? Because people don't have that attention span, and that leads to social like TikTok, right? Yeah. You know, my I have an eleven year old son, fourteen year old daughter, seventeen year old daughter. The eleven and fourteen year olds in particular grew up with TikTok, believe it or not, and that's how they get everything. They're not going on Snapchat Discover like my 17-year-old is, you know, or maybe they would have two years ago, right? Everything that they find out, 
you know, once you hear about the James Harden trade, I was on TikTok. It came right up, right? Yeah. Because TikTok's algorithms are so good. Their AI is so good. They know what you want based off of your viewing history and they deliver it really, really, really well. The question becomes, should we be using that model? So we've had conversations to say, look, maybe instead of a whole game, because the attention span for Gen Z is not to sit there and watch a whole game. That's just not going to happen for at least half those fans. And so what if we can give them possession versus big possession, right, and use algorithms to determine what hmm. how we rate a given possession? So they might get be getting a normal um, TikTok feed, but if they're on TikTok and they're NBA or basketball fans, we're going to throw in their NBA games that maybe not won't give you 48 minutes of action, but might give you 23 minutes of action yep. and the type of action that you like. And that's going to be a new way to consume it. And that's where AI and new pro, new um, technologies and protocols are going to allow us to deliver how people want it, where they want it, and when they want it. Wow. Because it's, it's going to be a challenge to get those 11-year-olds today. Like, I'm embarrassed to say, like, my son doesn't always even know what night there's a Mavs game. <laughs> right. But the minute the game starts, he's getting stuff on TikTok. Yeah. You know, he'll know and then he'll come down and watch with me or my daughter, you know, uses watches more games now because she's into fantasy sports now, into fantasy basketball, competing with her brother. And so now they'll watch more. But, you know, with betting, we'll get more of that. But you still have to deliver it where, when and how people want it. And you can't just say, look, this worked for X number of decades on traditional television. That shit's gone. Yeah. Those days are gone. Wow. So I love that. That like the for you TikTok, that's the specific algorithm that everyone talks about where different than call it Facebook and Instagram or Twitter is like our algorithm is the news feed that they think they sh that we want, but it's based on who we follow. TikTok's for you. You don't follow any of the people that they're serving. So that would be the difference if I'm hearing you right between the NFL red zone, which I think has been successful for a long time, but they're saying you want to watch the teams that are inside the 20 yard line. What, what you're talking about is being even more bespoke to the trends of the viewer who likes specific teams. It doesn't matter if it's the end of the fourth quarter or not. They just want to watch the Mavs and the Lakers when the Mavs and the Lakers have the ball on offense. Well, they're just happy. Yeah, they don't even know specifically. Like you, don't, like, you can't predict what's coming next to you and your for you on TikTok. Right. Right. You don't know Charlie D'Amelio's coming next. Or yeah. and even if you think to yourself, I want to watch something from Charlie D'Amelio, you're you're probably not, you know, going to her page to look to see what it was. You just know that based off of everything you watch, it's coming. It's going to be there. Yeah. And chances are if you really follow her, you know, and you really pay attention, it's going to be the first thing that you see when you when you bring it up. And the way that I think this will end up working or should work hmm. is you just are using TikTok because that's your alternative to boredom. Yeah. Used to be back in the day, you you know, you point yourself at the television and then you, you know, and now on YouTube, YouTube is mostly informative and um and personality driven, right? Yeah. Where you have a subscription, you get a notification. It's not, you know, and you might see some things in the algorithm that that are suggestive, but it's more reactive than proactive. Yeah. Or it's suggestive more than initiated. I actually think this this idea that you're uh, conjuring is fascinating and could be huge for sports because if it's like TikTok, 
we actually get a better experience on TikTok the more time we spend on it. Cause it's like a Google search, the more it learns about us. And therefore it's like encouraging people to watch more NBA and more PLL because the next time they tune in, it's going to be kick-ass with a bunch of the right highlights and moments that they well, want. Exactly right. That's exactly a hundred percent right. Mm. Because, and again, in my mind, that's why there's that inverse relationship between actual game time and ratings. Yeah. Because when you watch football, if there's, let's just say I've heard 12 minutes, I've heard 30 minutes of actually actual game time, right? Yeah. Um, when the ball is in play, yeah. you don't have to concentrate. No. Right. And you can do anything. You could write a book, you know, you can do your homework, you can do your, you know, your email and you don't miss a damn thing. When you're watching a lacrosse game, a rugby game, um, a baseball game, or not baseball, um, they're, they're not time driven, <laughs> um, a basketball game, you know, we want you engaged the whole time, but it's almost impossible to keep you engaged that long. Yeah. You know, I I would not even be opposed to having a serious conversation of shortening our games to 40 minutes like college and international is, you know, and there's also the, all the traditional is, issues and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the reality is that could change how we're um, consumed and the value of the consumption more than anything. Amazing. Well, we've uh, we've covered so much. I, I could talk to you or, or try to steal more of your time. Um, well, that was great. I really enjoyed the question. You're prepared and you know your shit. Yeah. So you have to begin. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I do. I do want to finish with one, and uh, you know, it's it's comprised of some of the things we haven't talked about. But you you've done everything: tech, sports, media, your television personality. We, I wanted to talk about your your short stint in acting, but that probably has helped you on Shark Tank. My short stint? Well, you're, I don't think you're acting in Shark Tank, but you did go out for, was it Twister? And and lost out on a role to Philip Seymour Hoffman, which, you know, if you're going to lose... I see PB and you can see some of my highlights. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then politics. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your back and forth with Ted Cruz, which is brilliant, and even Josh Hawley. And the question is, like, why, man? And, like, what motivates you um, every day to keep firing? I'm always very curious around people like yourself. One, one I'm super competitive. That's why, I, you know, businesses, investing, right? Because to me, that's the ultimate competitive juice. Like we talked earlier, you're competing against everybody. Yeah. And I used to be, you know, when I started, I was always the youngest. Now there's all the, the, the young kids, right? And I want to show I can still kick their ass. You know, you come up against the best, I'm going to fuck with you. Yeah. Now, the second part of that in terms of the politicians and that, um, that's different. I don't have a boss, right? And if everybody just shut me down, I'd still be okay. Right. My kids are going to eat. Um, and like I said, I'm really fortunate. I'm really blessed financially so I can fuck with people. Yeah. Now, the, the key is, you know, what's the impact um, that I'm having? Right. Because particularly in social media, if you're going to if you're going to troll people, you're going to get trolled back hard. Yeah. You know, and they're going to come out of the woodwork and they're you know, there's going to be idiots there that make threats and this and that. So you've got to you've got to really understand that side of it. But I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I don't take sides. But when I see a politician doing something I think it's stupid is stupid or wrong, I'll, I have no problem calling him out. Now, if I control him, which is different, a little bit different, right, and have some fun with it, yeah, all the better. But I don't care if it's Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley on one side. I don't care if it's calling out AOC because I disagree with her or Chuck Schumer, right? I'll call out. I called out Trump. Yeah, you know, I'll call out Joe Biden. I don't care, right? I just, you know. If, if I try to, you know, if I'm authentic, which I, I am, if I'm trying to do it for the right reasons, which I do, and I can have a little bit fun on top of that by 
you know, messing with a Ted Cruz or messing with Josh Hawley, all the better. Yeah. And I think it's a, a it's a, a fun intellectual exercise to try to be logical, to uh, a, appeal to understand the emotion all in under 280 characters, which makes Twitter exactly. fun. And I never try to maximize it. Like I, I messed with Ted Cruz last night and I thought for a second, you know, well, if I wait till tomorrow, I can get more of this, you know, more retweets. I'm like, fuck it. Right. This, this is on my mind now. I don't care about that. He'll see it. That's all that matters. Yep. Love it. Well, dude, I uh, appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad everyone got to, to see you visually and listen to you. And uh, the show's going to be awesome. So thanks for taking the time. No, man, I appreciate it, Paul. This is great. I really enjoyed it, man. Great, great interview. All right. That is the end of today's game. We're going to keep running that attempt at in and out of segments. But anyway, I remember finishing this show and looking across the table like I am now at my producer, Brett, and going, damn, that was awesome. I know the subject matter may have felt all over the place, but Mark and I are obsessed with numbers and schemes for media networks, streaming platforms, and all that type of stuff. So the takeaways, shoot me a tweet today if you want clarification on any of that. I'll try to write you a reply. My Twitter's at Paul Rabel, and his is at M Cuban. Also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and and consider giving us a rating and review, a five-star rating, ideally, but all ratings are helpful and thank you. And if you'd like, suggest a question for our next guest, which coming up next week is another GOAT, 18-time basketball champion. Started at UConn, competed overseas, and won her fourth WNBA title during the Wubble. Sue Bird's going to be on the show. And this show was brought to you by public.com. They create a whole new way to invest. They make the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. Remember, to access $10, go to public.com forward slash suiting up. And OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps from web to mobile. And when it comes to the PLL, they helped us design our COVID app this past summer to ensure the health and safety of all player, staff, coaches within our bubble. Go to OutSystems.com to check them out. And last but not least, the show is made possible by our incredible team here at PLL Podcast. The show is produced and edited by Brett Roberts, research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design, Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and support on our overtime newsletter from Katie Scott. We'll see you next week.